We have a high-performing health system that is integrated, that has a unitary electronic medical record that generates its own evidence that the physicians get feedback constantly about quality of care and patients who don't come in, you know who they are and you know what they need. So we're gonna embed a medical school in a system that works. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. Chris Castle never set out to be a doctor, but a chance happening with a humanitarian-oriented Navy corpsman and a broken arm took her down the road to medicine. Over the years, she's gone from accidental doctor to the ultimate physician leader. This is Tectonics. I'm David Chalitz. And I'm Lisa Sunan. And today's episode is brought to you by AARP Market Innovation, which works to spark innovation in the market that will benefit the quality of life for people over 50. David, I think it's so interesting what's going on now in light of the fact, particularly that we're going to talk to to Chris, that uh, the ACA is obviously in big play. And while I don't want to go into the specifics of the argument, I think it's interesting that in the end, to get something done, we may actually end up with a bipartisan solution that in the end, government might actually work. Yeah, that sounds like a radical idea. I know, um, right? But it's uh, it, it's still still interesting to me that it's sort of presented as sort of the the, the worst option. Uh, well, whatever we must do, we must avoid. You know, you hear what yeah, some of these folks say. Oh, let's not have anything bipartisan. That would be so terrible. But I think if people define themselves as their key identity as being in opposition to something, it really then makes it subsequently hard to collaborate with people. And this is, I mean, obviously so much part of the budget, of the national budget, of the national expenditure. This really should be a challenges that we're trying to face together. And I think that there are some approaches, Some, you know, for example, what Collins and Cassidy tried to advocate for. I would love to, I think that there's a real element of that that could be part of a national bipartisan conversation. Well, I'm heartened to see that there's a, a, dis, a, a meaningful discussion going on about in, in keeping care for the underserved. Uh, but speaking of people at the forefront of medical system change, delighted today to feature our guest, Dr. Chris Castle, who's the planning dean of the Kaiser Permanente School of Medicine, a brand new medical school in the works. Previously, she was the president and CEO of the National Quality Forum. She served as president and first female CEO of the American Board of Internal Medicine and the ABIM Foundation. Dr. Castle was one of the 20 scientists sh- chosen by President Obama to serve on the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology. And the lust after that goes on and on and on, so I won't even try. Specialist in geriatric medicine, medical ethics, health policy, and quality of care covers it in general. And Chris, uh, with all that, you said you never set out to be a doctor, that you were headed for a PhD in philosophy. What happened? (laughs) That's right, Lisa. Well, first of all, it's a pleasure to be with you today. Um, And you're exactly right. Uh, As a college student at the University of Chicago, I was uh, fascinated by philosophy and particularly moral philosophy and um, uh, had a fellowship to get a PhD. And I was out hiking with some friends, fell down, broke my arm. Um, And I was, uh, you know, 22 years old, uninsured, and um, couldn't find every emergency room that would even see me. And I have, my dad was a, it was before Mtala, so, you know, long time ago. Um, And uh, my dad was a Navy officer. And so I had been entitled to Navy healthcare, but I was now over 21, so no longer. But so I went to the local Navy base where we were on Whidbey Island and in the Puget Sound, kind of a wonderful, beautiful place. 
And there was a physician on duty who agreed to see me and um, took x-rays. We looked at the x-rays together. He was clearly not an expert in orthopedics. This was an unusual fracture. And together we looked at these pictures on the screen and looked through an atlas of fractures. And he said, wow. he said, you, I kind of think it looks like this one. What do you think? <laughs> and, you know, this was, this was before we talked about shared decision-making. Yeah, right. I kind of think about it as the first instance of shared decision-making. Anyway, he set the arm. Um, as I was checking out, it was the corpsman who was filing the, the record said, well, Captain, you know, how should I file this? He clearly thought this was very out of the ordinary. And the doc just said, file it under H for humanitarian. Huh. And, and I fell in love. At that moment, <laughs> with with this man, but also with the whole idea, and um, I thought, wow, I wonder if I could do this. You know, this is really moral philosophy in action, which is sort of how I thought about it. And um, I had six weeks while I was in this cast, and my friends were good enough to put me up in their house. And I went to the local library and got out some chemistry books, wrote a few letters to medical schools, very naive about the whole thing, which was probably a good thing. Um, and, you know, one thing left to an led to another. I applied to medical school, and it was the best thing that ever happened to me. You said medicine, I think this is what you meant, is moral philosophy in action. What do you mean by that? What is the, what is the connection you saw? Well, I saw that you have skills to be able to help people. I mean, it's, it's really that simple um, that um, uh, you can, you can, you have skills and knowledge that you can apply in. And as I came to really see um, in many different communities, any place you go in any setting in so many different ways that um, physicians can contribute to making people's lives better. And um, so, you know, one is the direct care when someone is injured. And, you know, that was what I saw there. But, you know, now, um, you know, my work has led me into uh, uh, studying medical ethics, into geriatric medicine and into health policy. And, you know, in the policy world, is all about morality, as I see it. It's all about how do you really do the right thing for the most people and, you know, that really respects the fundamental um, uh, value of human life and respects the individual's right to make decisions for themselves. Well, let me ask you about that, um, because one of the challenges that's always um, puzzled me, um, and uh, I should sort of mention at the beginning of this, you know, trained as an internist, I think she signed my diploma at some point or some more <laughs> certification. Um, so uh, thank you for that. Um, <laughs> Um, but I think one of the real challenges is, you know, you know, the idea of doing no harm and, 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 and your sort of moral responsibility. How do you balance the idea of the moral responsibility to the individual in front of you? The idea of – and I, I've written about this. I, I've struggled with this – of the idea that I want the physician in front of me to do the very best they can and to give me the very best advice they can to take care of – you know, give me the very best advice, almost independent of cost, 
independent of impact on anyone. I want what's their best advice for me. I trust that they are going to do that. On the other hand, how do you balance that with sort of the, the populationist viewpoint, the idea of your goal is to sort of maximize the health or the care of, of, of a population? H- how do you, and I know that that's sort of a part of, you know, some of the parsimony initiatives. H- how do you balance those two sort of competing ethoses? Well, exactly, Dave. That's, that's um, one of the fundamental um, issues in the field of biomedical ethics that philosophers and theologians and lawyers and physicians have um, worked on over many years. I think it actually, um, it actually takes many forms, and I think that's what policymakers need to focus on. But the reality is, in the United States of America, where you're dealing with a healthcare system that is $3 trillion, most experts agree about a third of it is waste. So you have a long ways to go before you're really cutting into something that really matters to the well-being of human being as you look at eliminating waste. And maybe we can talk about that in a minute. But um, but the most important thing is the physicians understand that this is a moral question and they understand that it can be solved. So if you have in front of you a panel of patients who you are responsible for and you have all of the relevant data about those patients and what they need and what their health status is and the social determinants that can help improve their health, and at the same time, you're managing a healthcare budget, basically, where you're looking at what is the evidence of what works and what doesn't work. It actually can come out. That is the Kaiser Permanente system. That's why I was so excited to be able to come and help start a medical school in a system that has the capability to actually make those kinds of decisions and the scale so that if you, as the individual patient, have a particular, an unusual illness, and you say, you know, there's this very expensive medication or surgery or treatment that I need, um, there is a way for you to get that in a system in which all of the other kind, all of the waste of the system, which the rest of our healthcare is so full of, is is able to be reduced so that the cost there is available for those relatively unusual situations. So I know you've spent a lot of time thinking about this very issue, and and you told me that one of your most proud accomplishments is leadership in the Choosing Wisely campaign. And yes, you know maybe you can connect this to uh, that for us. You know what? Maybe tell us a little bit about Choosing Wisely uh, for the audience and why this is so impactful. Sure. And um, thanks for giving me an opportunity, Lisa. This is one of the things in my career that I'm most proud of is having started that campaign uh, four or five years ago now, um, where it was actually um, around the time of the uh, beginning of the Affordable Care Act deliberations that Black uh, Act was passed, as you know, in 2010. So actually it was um, probably just after that. If you recall, every time we talked about trying to manage cost, there was a big outcry about rationing and death, death panels. panels. Death panels. Death panels, rationing, everything, you know, is terrible. Um, and I was dismayed that organized medicine did not stand up and say, 
This is not about death panels. This is about evidence-based approaches to making sure everybody gets what they need. But it was so politicized and, you know, much like the current environment, nobody wants to be the target of any attack on, from politicians. So, you know, our major medical organizations did not um, really fight back at that. And I was president of the ABIM at the time, and I thought, you know, maybe... American Board of Internal if, Medicine. American Board of Internal Medicine, thank you. Um, maybe if we could get doctors and patients together to be a voice of reason about overuse in healthcare, then we can, maybe it'll be less radioactive and we can get the rationing discussion out of the way because the insurance companies will not be part of that discussion. This is really about doctors and patients having a conversation about what's the right thing for that patient. So the challenge here was getting the specialty societies to step up and be the first ones to identify five things in your specialty that are overused. And, you know, God bless them. We've got radiology, cardiology, American College of Surgeons, uh, ACP, family medicine. Um, it was wonderful. So nine of the major specialties, including some of the high-tech specialties, um, appeared with us at a press conference. And it just went viral. We were trending. We were, you know, everybody was amazed that doctors were standing up and saying, you know what? We are responsible for some parts of excess use of healthcare. And right next to us were Consumer Reports, AARP, all of the consumer groups who were willing to say, we need our consumers and our members to understand this and be able to go to their doctor and say, you know, do I really need this test? Is there, is there an option where I could wait and see what happens? And so if the patient is at the table with you, with the same evidence, having that conversation, then that's the conversation we need to have. And of course, as you know, that that term has now become uh, ubiquitous. It's everywhere. So let's explore this a little bit more. Of, um, so first, I think part of the issue with the death, the completely erroneous use of the term death panels, specifically referred to the ability for a physician to engage and to be reimbursed for the option of having an end-of-life chat preference chat with patients. Mm -hmm. um, and I actually think that eventually did get enacted a little bit, I think, in, in the middle of his second, uh, of Obama's second term, if I'm remembering right. Um, but I think the idea of the, the choosing wisely, what I wonder about is two things. One, the difference between stated and revealed preferences, where people, where specialties are like, oh, yeah, no, we'll, we'll, we definitely want to do the right thing. And we want to share data. And we want to, you know, all this stuff that people say, versus how people act, <laughs> and how that sort of relates to both the motivate the I, th I really do think mo almost all physicians really envision themselves as wanting to do the right thing, but it's hard when people get paid more for, you know, in a sense, you know, for, for, for doing more. Yeah. But then the idea of a patient as the vehicle for for this, um, uh, you know, sort of the force, force function, um, I wonder about that when you think about patients asking for antibiotics when their kids are sick or the sort of therapeutic effect of a normal study that was probably unnecessary. I wonder how much of the, um, you know, or, or, or the role of when doctors have such a small amount of time with patients, my understanding is a lot of the, and my, you know, I, I'm aware that a lot of times, you know, the you know, doctors, you know, in a tiny amount of time, if given the choice of, okay, do I 
negotiate with a patient about why you really don't need the stupid antibiotic or do I just write the prescription and get on to the next patient? Um, you know, how do you, how, how you, um, it, it's, it's more complicated than just, oh, yes. you know, everyone's sort of saying kumbaya and we'll do the right thing. Well, and, uh, you know, as you know, what you're describing is the culture change doesn't happen by flipping a switch, right? Mm-hmm. And there are many different um, uh, competing incentives. And certainly the fee-for-service healthcare model, it makes it very hard for physicians to, um to take the time to have this conversation. Plus, you know, in many cases, they actually do benefit financially from the overuse of healthcare. But that was what was so wonderful about choosing wisely is we ultimately got 40 specialty organizations. And many of them said, we know that this may reduce our income, but we also know it's the right thing to do. And we have to somehow figure out a way to get to more value-based purchasing. I mean, everybody sort of sees that on the horizon. But still, um, it isn't that we've transformed those practices overnight. Now, in terms of the patient's role, we have kind of created this culture um, where patients expect to get that. And they think, you know, I'm I'm not getting good care if I don't get antibiotics for my cold or for my kid's um, earache, even if, you know, it isn't indicated. Or an MRI every time I fall down and hurt my ankle or whatever it is. but um, but what's happening now, you know, for better or worse, is that patients themselves are paying more and more of the ticket through high uh, premiums, through high deductibles, through copays. So uh, we found in lots of the in lots of the radio and TV shows that I did after choosing wisely, the the consumers, the families said, you know. I got this test and then I got a bill for $3,000 and I didn't even need the test. And they're angry about that. So, you know, I think we actually do have an additional driver now, which is the increased cost that is a burden to the patient themselves making that decision. Have you, has there been any research or study done to verify that an impact has been made through choosing wisely? Is there any outcomes yet? That's a really good question, Lisa. I know that... Um, uh, uh, several academic centers um, that do uh, excellent health services research are beginning to study this. I haven't. There are a few early studies out which show modest impact, but as you can imagine, it's sort of difficult to figure out a huge impact when there are so many other things going on, like changes in payment policy for um, uh, patients, like value purchasing, et cetera. Isn't also the idea of giving sort of, you know, higher deductibles and, you know, making health, health um, you know, patients, consumers, um, you know, more you know, sort of complicated because when they've done studies, on the one hand, if you own more of the responsibility, you know, you're right. Yeah, you might not want the high, you might not want the super expensive test. But my understanding, and, you know, I would defer to your experience of the data, are that sometimes people won't even get the test that they need. They're genuinely useful, evidence-based. Yes. So, how, yes. you know, it's not that people become these in super smart, wise consumers just because... No, I'm totally yeah. with you on that one, that um, the... Um, I, I'm not in favor of the skin in the game model of how to do smart purchasing for healthcare. I really think that um, that having uh, incentives towards value purchasing is the way to go, and that that way you get everybody having the same incentives. Um, but you and w- when when patients pay more out of pocket, 
they may decide not to have the unnecessary tests, but you're absolutely right. They may also decide not to have the necessary tests, which is why the essential benefits protection of the ACA is so important and is one of the things that, as you know, is on the table right now. So you were a key scientific leader in the Obama administration. And, uh, you know, what's going on now must be really interesting to watch for you, so to, so to speak. Right. I heard that the uh, the Office of Science and Technology has all been closed down uh, yeah, literally the only person I think there is Matt Might on a fractional basis. Yeah, and, you know, sharp contrast to the let technology flourish approach that you've said reigned during Obama's time. You know, how, can, how does this impact what's happening today in science? Well, I, I think it's very regrettable that we don't have a science resource of for policy that's being made at the level of the administration and that there is such neglect of science, even in some parts of Congress. Um, Because if you think about it, every aspect of every decision, whether we deal with natural disasters, whether we deal with national policy about weapons or climate change or energy policy or health, it isn't just healthcare. I mean, healthcare is a big part of it. But science affects manufacturing policy. It affects all aspects of innovation on our economy. Um, And, you know, right now, as you point out, what was a significant staff of experts that were available to President Obama, plus the independent scientists that I was privileged to be part of, um, just are not there. I think it's important also for your listeners to know that it isn't just Obama was a serious science geek and he loved science and he read voraciously and really, really smart and really believed it was part of the future of our national economy, which I agree with. But it isn't just Obama. I mean, the Office of Science and Technology Policy and the role of the president's advisors go back to World War II. President, both presidents, Bush, President Clinton, and pres- all presidents before them had substantial science advisors in their administration. So it is really anomaly that we don't have that. It really does seem tragic because I actually was fortunate enough to um, have a number of close interactions with OSTP, um, you know, with the Precision Medicine Initiative, with uh, just mm-hmm. blown away by the quality of the people, the commitment, the interest. And actually, as you talked about, certainly Obama was very conversant. I mean, some of his discussions involving the Precision Medicine Initiative yes. were of, of almost un- unimaginable sophistication for for you know for someone who didn't who didn't train in the area. Um, so it you know it it it's striking, but. Um, you know, it sounds like the essentially the entire functions of that office are now going to be subsumed by some group that I guess um, Jared Kushner is chairing when he's done solving Middle East peace. So that'll be uh, something to watch. We wanted to ask you about um, your um, one of the things I know that you've been very involved with, with the Over the Counter Hearing Aid Act. Yes, Can you tell us more about that. Yes, well, and this was something that President Obama specifically asked for. He. Um, as I said, is very smart. He's looking at the future. He's seeing the aging of the population. And he asked us and me to chair a report on how could technology make lives better for people as we grow older? Um, a very big topic. And we actually did a big report on that general topic. But at the beginning of the report, we looked at the issue of hearing, which affects more than 50% of people over the age of 70 and more than 60 or 70% of people over the age of 80. And since people are living so long, it has major impact on 
ability to live independently, ability to keep working. It uh, links with depression and social isolation. And there's even some data now that hearing impairment can put you at higher risk for dementia and falls and injuries like that. So, so serious, serious medical issue. And yet it hasn't really gotten the attention it deserves from the medical community. So it's been since 1974 that the FDA has been regulating hearing aids under a uh, regulation that hasn't changed since that time and has been very dominated by a kind of an old technology approach just a few large companies that connect with individual audiologists and hearing aid providers so that when you go to your hearing aid provider, you only get a choice of one company. You don't get like with your eyeglasses, you get a prescription and then you can go shop around and you can go to the internet or you can go to your local um, eyeglass place and find what you want. With hearing aids, that has not been possible. And for people who have early, mild hearing loss, you couldn't just go into CVS or Walgreens or someplace and try out a hearing aid the way you can with reading glasses. So we talked with a number of experts in acoustic electronics and in audiology science and came to the conclusion that we were really at a place where we needed to open this market up to innovation in modern electronics and to more consumer-driven approaches, and particularly for people to be able to try out their own model before they make the big step of going to the you know, uh, audiologist and perhaps getting something that's more um, uh, specifically engineered just to them. So um, it looks now like the FDA, you know, they put this out for public comment and it's been relatively favorable. The predictable industry response has been negative, but death panels. <laughs> death panels. No, protect their interest. This is a very big deal and I'm very proud of oh it. Oh my gosh. And everyone suffered from it. I don't know anybody who's, who's older. Yeah. Well, huh? <laughs> hey, what's it? Well, you know that when, when we met, met with the president, and I first raised it for the family. He said, just, he said, hey, what? What'd you say? You know, <laughs> yeah, really, so I it's it. a good sense of humor. But, um, but uh, it has been a kind of a stigma and a financial barrier yeah. for people taking that first step the way you don't have that first step when you first need reading glasses, you know. And one, one of the things I think people don't appreciate about this problem is that the vast majority of hearing aids are not covered by insurance. I think Kaiser and the VA are the only places in America where hearing is generally covered. Right. Not covered. And and even the, and there needs to be such innovation. I don't know anybody, like anyone on the planet who wears them who likes them. Yeah. Like I know a bunch of people who have them prescribed super expensive ones they still don't wear them because it just sucks and then other you know they just won't yeah. wear them or they wear them and they're still inadequate or there's yeah, ambient noise and, it, so, and as it, you know with music and other kinds of things and podcasts and other you know acoustic technology is really accelerating and there's all kinds of innovation um and there are and we encountered through our work with the uh with this this report all kinds of people who are just really eager to work on this problem. And um, so I think what we are able to do now is open up that marketplace. And fortunately, I think that, you know, the one of the things about the current administration is that they're not eager to put unnecessary regulations in place. So let's hope <laughs> that this one, this one is also in that category. <laughs> well, that was what surprised right. me where 
I heard that some of the people res- resisting it were people who almost traditionally had been in favor of this exact approach. So you're like, you know, some you know, some on the right were somehow objecting to this, and it, it seemed inconsistent with even what they had been been championing. So I agree. Hopefully, this will go through. I know we only have a little bit of time, but we really want to talk about also the um, this new medical school. A couple of years ago, I was I um, was in Austin and I um, wrote about. Dell Medical School. I, was, I didn't even know about it. And I was fascinated by what they were trying to do, which was essentially trying to train what I called populationists, or maybe yes. what they called populationists. Yes. Um, and it seemed so exciting and, and such a novel idea. And it was so captivating to the people of, of, um, of, tech, of, of the community in, 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 in Texas that they actually agreed to have their local property taxes raised. Travis County, that's right. To, to, yeah, to pay yeah. for it. And, and that's, that's, that doesn't go really, you know, that, that's a pretty big, you know, in California, you say, well, of course, how else would you pay for it? But <laughs> in Texas, it's, it's, it's really a big achievement. Um, and, um, you know, I'm wondering, is, is your, is, tell us about what your goals are at Kaiser, and is it in the same sort of population It's very model? much in a similar model. Um, we've actually been in discussions and visited um, Clay Johnson and um, Elizabeth Heisberg and the team there, uh, and I, they're doing really exciting and interesting things. What we're doing is, in some ways, and they are the first to acknowledge this, we have a big advantage, which is we have a high-performing health system that is integrated, that has a unitary electronic medical record that generates its own evidence that the physicians get feedback constantly about quality of care and patients who don't come in, you know who they are and you know what they need. So so we're going to embed a medical school in a system that works. And the students will learn population medicine alongside physicians, nurses, and healthcare teams that already work this way. So that's what I think is the, that's the magic of what it is that we're trying to do. Do you worry that, for example, the Kaiser model has worked really well in California, but it hasn't been universally adopted, you know, around the country, and it hasn't been as successful, as my understanding, in some places as it's been here. Do you think that by training people in this model, they won't be exposed to some of the real world challenges they might experience in other geographies? Two important points. One is that the Kaiser model is very successful in Oregon. They just acquired group health in Washington, Hawaii. They have a very good program in Colorado. And the Mid-Atlantic program, Maryland, Washington, D.C., and Virginia, is expanding like mad. So it's not as easy when they don't own their own hospitals, because you can imagine that the whole population-based approach when you're dealing with a different hospital is more challenging. But nonetheless, it it is, you know, now 12 million members in 13 different states around the country. California has the much highest density, and that's why it's a logical place for us to start. But the board of uh, Kaiser that decided to fund this medical school is very clear. This is not a feeder school for the Permanente Medical Group. This is a different model for how to train physicians who should go out in the world and be change agents for improving healthcare. So exactly what you said, we are going to make a concerted effort to expose the students to how the rest of the world works, or at least the rest of the United States, and and to teach them change management, to teach them resilience, to te- the kinds of things that they need in order to be leaders in um, helping 
to produce a healthcare system for our country that really works. Implementation science? Yeah. Implementation science, exactly. I hope you're also going to teach them finance because they're going to need to know that too. (laughs) That's right. So what role does technology play in the curriculum? I mean, is that an advanced curriculum for them? Are you thinking thinking about things like, you know, virtual reality? Totally. And AI and analytics and all the rest? So first of all, we're thinking we're preparing students. Our our first students um, enroll in 2019. They graduate in 2023 and then they do a residency. So we have to prepare them for practicing medicine 2030 and beyond. Just think about that for a minute. When robots will have taken over for doctors, you won't need them anymore? Or AI overlords. (laughs) But but the first thing is, you mentioned um, virtual reality. We are not going to have anatomy labs. We are not going to have cadavers and dissection. We are going to use entirely virtual anatomy teaching. We've been talking with uh, Microsoft and Case Western Reserve and uh, uh, Cleveland Clinic about the HoloLens model. It's extremely cool and a really, I think, better way to learn anatomy in many ways. Um, but there's a lot of different virtual uh, technologies that... Yeah, get rid of the dog lab. That was terrible. Exactly. I mean, you remember, <laughs> right? It was awful. So um, so in three years from now, that's already going to be major advances in technology when our students first are getting into that. And we're and so that's a big commitment. The second thing, Lisa, you mentioned is um, uh, analytics. And, you know, we, we are definitely going to use a, an IT platform for education that will integrate every student's ability to resp- to access information, to respond to many exams, to know where their strengths and weaknesses are, to have them understand how their patients are doing, how their interactions with the residents and the faculty. And, you know, there are information platforms that do that. Now, I call it precision education instead of precision medicine, that every, nice. every student will be able to be able to focus on what they need to focus on, not just the generic exam. So do you think the other medical schools out there, the traditional academic medical schools, are watching and learning from this exercise or are they poo-pooing this exercise? Um, I think they're watching and learning. We are getting a lot a lot of attention given that we have actually this small little medical school. We're starting with 48 students. But I think, I think the fact that we're able to start from scratch and a lot of medical schools know that they need to change, but it's hard to change in an existing academic culture where you have a lot of other agendas going on and, you know, institutional inertia that you're up against. So I think I think we are being watched, and I'm very respectful of that. I mean, I think we have wonderful research uh, institutions in our country, wonderful training, but I think this new model will really contribute to helping everybody make those changes. That's wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Chris. It's been such a pleasure to speak to you today. Terrific. Thank you so much. It's been lots of fun. Thanks. Talk soon. Take care. Okay. Bye. Today's guest, Chris Castle, was speaking to us today from Tectonic Studio B in Mill Valley, California. Wow, um, so interesting, and I'm I'm really in, it'll be very interesting to see um, what happens with this uh, this sort of this model, these populationists, and with the idea of sort of Kaiser as a model, particularly what it means for you know trying to balance. You know, the, the one thing that I really did take away from my medical school experience was really the most important thing was the patient in front of you. And if they can sort of imbue somehow this 
I don't know how you do it, really, this sort of you know, sensitivity, sensibility about the population, but without losing um, that core element. And the other thing I, I would say is, you know, some doctors at Kaiser really like it, but there are a huge number who really view it as kind of robotic, who the doctors who are there, they're like, my gosh, we're being, you know, it's, it, it's, we're part of a machine. We have to see patients every certain amount of time. And it's kind of not really the, I would say, the expressivity and the imagination that they really... In expected when they went to medicine. So I think there's a range of experiences. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, health policy people tend to have an orgasm when they talk about um, Kaiser. It's like, oh my gosh, if the whole world could be like this. But I'm not sure from the ex- if the experience of each individual patient or each individual doctor is necessarily that extraordinary there. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think the outcomes they've had in some key areas have been pretty extraordinary on, on, on the one hand. And on the other hand, you know, nothing's perfect, right? But it's... Um, you know, it's it's the gap always between what you what you design and what you get. But I and peop, when people are involved, I think it's interesting, and I also think it'll be interesting to see, you know, what brand sensitivity there is. I mean, people love to wear the Harvard Med, you know, sweatshirt and and have the brand of Stanford, you know. And will this be considered an equally good brand? It'll be interesting to see how this develops over time. Super interesting. Yeah. So you can follow David Shaywitz's writing at Forbes. You can follow Lisa Sunin at VentureValkyrie.com as well as on the Timmerman Report. We're grateful to AARP for sponsoring this episode of Tectonics. AARP's market innovation team works to spark innovation in the market that will benefit the quality of life for people over 50. Hasta la vista, baby. 